Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's a weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. My name's Kevin Fulta, and today we're going to talk to Dr. Allison Van Edenham. She's a cooperative specialist, a cooperative education specialist. She's a cooperative extension specialist at the University of California, Davis. Uh, Welcome back to the podcast, Allison. Thanks, Kevin. (laughs) You really put your foot in it that time, didn't you? (laughs) I did. Well, the problem is, is that, you know, I I used to have the podcast. I'd set up everything and have copious notes, and I would look at them very carefully to make sure I got everything right. But as time's gone on, I've gotten more confident, and I make the mistake of – of just kind of shooting from the hip sometimes. So uh, that along with my rusty brain causes me to make critical errors. So there we are. Uh, well, well. <laughs> so let's uh, put, record with caution. That's right. And put lots of, uh, cre- lots of good, um, credibility into this podcast starting from the beginning. So I should mention for for the listeners that today there is an action item. So just like how we were able to encourage you to sign on to a petition from Dr. Steve Strauss, today we'll have one um, as well. So let's start out by talking about animal biotech, which we haven't covered as much as plant biotech. But what are some of the exciting recent things that have happened in animal biotechnology? Uh, well, so I'm, I obviously we're, we're excited about editing as well um, and see a lot of opportunity to introduce useful genetic variation with this technology. And I think some of the most compelling applications is, is probably um, in disease resistance and introducing um, genetic variation that enables, for example, pigs to not be susceptible to um, viruses like uh, this thing called PERS, which is the porcine reproductive and respiratory syndrome virus. Um, and there's actually been a couple of groups now around the world that have been able to just inactivate a gene that is the target for that virus to gain entrance to the pigs and basically renders the pigs immune to that that virus. And um, I think that that's just such an amazing power to be able to go in and just precisely tweak that gene and turn it off. Um, And there's a lot of kind of um, health applications like that that are of interest. There's groups working to introduce heat tolerance. Um, So there's this one gene called SLIC um, that actually helps cattle cope with heat. Um, and it's it's found in some of the tropically adapted breeds. And the, the objective is to try to bring it into um, like Holsteins in Florida um, who get hot in the summer. And if we could uh, introduce that trait, it could help those cattle cope with um you know, increasing uh, heat and as, as the climate varies. And of course, the project I've been working on a lot uh, at Davis in collaboration with Recombinetics is uh, producing hornless dairy cows so that they are um, genetically don't grow horns rather than having to have them manually removed. And that's really addressing an animal welfare concern. So there's lots of different applications um, that the technology could be used for. And so there's all sorts of research going on by mostly the public sector because we don't really have 
the large um, plant breeding companies like there is in the in the plant world. And so there is actually a company called Genus that's trying to take that disease-resistant pig to market. So um, there is definitely interest from the from the community and farmers to use this technology. And when we're looking at uh, the scope of things that are being done in animals, it's not just um, the typical farm animals, the typical livestock. I mean, there are a lot of genetic engineering tweaks that have been done in things like fish. And, and what are some of the – what is the range of this? Are we seeing even uh, – attempts to edit or change traits in things like poultry or fish? Certainly. So, yeah, I, I gave a couple of examples in, in uh, the four-legged creatures, um, but there are also groups um, working in poultry. One of the, the interesting ones in poultry that I think would capture people's attention is a couple of groups working to have a way to differentiate um, in, in egg uh, chickens as to whether they're male or female and uh, only hatch the female eggs for the layer industry because um, male chicks don't really have a purpose in the layer industry because they don't produce eggs and so those uh, day-old male chicks are usually um, killed and this really offers an opportunity to address both an animal welfare problem and also if you think about it double the efficiency of production so to speak, because you only have to hatch half as many eggs. And actually, there's a group in Australia doing that. And the, the male eggs, they divert off to vaccine production. So it still has a use, but it's for a different industry. And so there's um, some interesting examples there. And fish, they're looking, um, well, you're well aware of the genetically engineered fish. That's the aqua advantage salmon, where they introduced a gene from the, uh, the Pacific salmon to basically reduced to half the time it takes for a fish to get to market weight. That's been approved in um, the US and also Canada, but it's never been for sale in the US because there's been um, basically a political rider put on the budget bill by the Alaskan senators to prevent the sale of the fish in America. Um, And interestingly, Canada, which has um, uh, a more kind of – product risk-based regulatory framework has approved it and it's actually been for sale. And so they're the only country on earth that's ever actually sold a genetically engineered food animal for um, for food consumption. But there are groups working in fish to do things, um, for example, to uh, turn off the genes that, that uh, go down the development pathway of gonads so that the fish are infertile so that if, for example, um, a genetically improved line of salmon, um, not using gene editing or genome, just normal traditionally improved animals um, were to get out, they wouldn't be able to interbreed with, with the native populations. And so there's kind of some work on inducing sterility so that it basically um, prevents any uh genetic spread from those improved populations into the wild populations. So all sorts of different applications um, that are being looked at by different groups around the world. I guess the big question from the devil's advocate standpoint is, why not just do this by traditional breeding? Why do we have to resort to in vitro techniques or laboratory-based techniques to achieve these kinds of new traits? Yeah, and I mean, I, I certainly... I. To me, I see breed, uh, editing kind of on top of the, the uh, 
ice cream sundae of the breeding programs, if you will. So, I, you know, our traditional breeding programs have, have achieved remarkable gains and they, they consist of, you know, a structured breeding program and breeding objectives and, and measurements and progeny testing. And there's a whole infrastructure behind improving plants and animals. Um, and then, the thing that we have problems with is if we want to access a unique genetic variant that lies outside of our breeding program. So, for example, if I'm working in dairy cows, I don't have access to anything that's outside the breed of Holstein, for example. Um, and if I want to bring in a trait like polled or, or not growing horns, I have to reach outside of, of that breed and bring it in potentially from like a, a beef cow like Angus. And I don't want to crossbreed that in um, because then that's going to bring in a whole bunch of genetics that's not optimally suited for dairy production. So what I would really like is to just go and bring in the allele that has the uh, not growing horn consequence from from Angus and just make the the dairy cow allele for that particular gene the same as what it is in in the beef cow without bringing in all the, the rest of the beef genome if you will um, because then you'll get kind of a hybrid animal that's not really suitable for either beef or dairy that's that's kind of the the, sh the long answer it's just it's much more precise than intragressing and then backcrossing and and with animals it takes a long time to backcross too so um, it's about a two-year generation cycle or so for cows and so it, it's like 20 years if you want to bring in um, a gene from a you know a different uh, breed for example and, and then back cross out all of the genetics that you didn't want um, and keep the the one allele that you did so it's just it's it's a more targeted introgression I guess is, is a, a, an official way to say it so that that's and then um, some of the alleles so for example the the pig example I gave you, the disease-resistant pig, that's a that's a knockout of, of a particular gene. In other words, a gene got switched off. And probably somewhere in the pigs of the world, that mutation has happened. But how do you find it? <laughs> um, and so mm -hmm. it's, it's not that it couldn't have been achieved using conventional breeding. It's just finding that particular pig that has that mutation. Because if you kind of do the math, there's so many um, pigs that probably every pig is carrying a mutation in you know five five or ten genes and somewhere there'll be a pig that has that but we won't be able to identify it because we don't sequence all the pigs of the world um, and so that's where I think once we find a functional variant it just enables us to introduce it into the elite breeding lines that are then going to form the parents of the next generation of pigs and, and away you go so that's where the power is. You know, but so what's not to love? Here we are looking at these traits, which are good for animal welfare. They seem to be good for the breeder or for the breeders, but also the farmers who would raise them, who would have uh, maybe faster production, better production, safer production, less disease, uh, more precise from the engineering side. So why is it that we see plants on the market, but we've never seen a genetically engineered animal? Well, I mean, if we're talking editing, of course, that, that technology is relatively new compared to genetic engineering, where we were introducing a recombinant DNA construct from a different species, for example. And so, um, basically, to be honest with you, the, the, and it's been very frustrating in the course of my career, we have not really had access to use this technology as breeders, um, in part because the regulatory um, hurdle is just so high for, for, to get through um, the, 
the, the, the mandatory pre-market regulatory evaluation that the FDA requires is, is a very expensive process and it's been incredibly unpredictable. So the, like I said, the Aqua Advantage salmon's the only one that's ever got through and it was literally a, a, a multi-year endeavor and it costs, you know, tens of millions of dollars. And as I said, most animal breeding kind of work like this is being done by the public sector and, you know, the universities just don't have that kind of funding. And I, I think it's the same problem that the plant guys have had. So I know you've got some fungus resistant strawberries, but it's not a big enough market to justify the regulatory costs to go through for those, for that speciality crop. And we have kind of the same problem with animals in that we've got these useful applications that have been developed and there's a whole bunch of different applications sitting on the shelf. There's the Enviro pig that was developed by the University of Guelph that had a 75% reduction in phosphorus pollution in its manure. Um, there's been disease-resistant, mastitis-resistant cows developed by the USDA ARS sitting on the shelf. And it's just kind of been, you know, the research is done and it works, but then there's just no basic industry that has the deep enough pockets to take these things through the regulatory. And so it's really precluded the use of this technology in animal breeding. And so we got, what, 18 million farmers growing genetically engineered crops. And basically, there's nothing going on in animals. And so that's why I think we were so, you know, excited when editing came along, because it appeared like um, if you were doing edits that could have been achieved using conventional breeding, that it wasn't going to um, be treated any differently to conventional breeding. And, and therefore, that would open up the possibility for animal breeders to use this technology to do things um, like the examples I've mentioned. But um, that's really not um, how the, the regulation or the draft regulations are playing out. They're going to be proposed to regulate these animals um, that have intentional alterations as drugs. <laughs> and that that is just, it's kind of nonsensical. And it's really, it's really an issue for public sector scientists because it, um, it, it'll make it cost prohibitive to do research in, in um, large domestic animals like cattle. What about in the other parts of the world? I'm, do other places have similar regulatory hurdles or are there good examples of where something could potentially be released, especially in the developing world? Well, it's yes. So it's kind of an interesting dichotomy that's forming. So South America and, and particularly Brazil and Argentina have both kind of announced their regulatory approach to edited food animals and plants and they have the same approach whether you're in the plant kingdom or the animal kingdom because they recognize that this is just food and the question they ask which is compliant with a Cartagena protocol is is there any um, novel DNA sequences in this plant or animal and basically if the answer is no in other words there's no to use the term transgenic there's no exogenous DNA sequences in there then it's not going to be treated as a GMO. It's just going to be tr treated as conventional breeding. Um, and they've actually already made a decision in both of those countries as it relates to a couple of animal examples, including the polled animals that I mentioned a minute ago, um, where because there's no novel DNA in those animals, it's basically an existing allele that already exists in that species, and it could have been achieved using conventional breeding, um, they're not going to treat the polled um, Holsteins as, as GMOs. And so we'll have this regulatory 
disharmony between different countries. And so, you know, Canada polled wouldn't be considered a novel product because it's already in the food supply. It's not going to be treated as a GMO in Argentina and Brazil. In America, it's going to be treated as a drug. <laughs> and in Europe, of course, everything is a GMO uh, that's been created using modern biotechnology, irrespective of whether it could have been achieved using conventional breeding. And so we're in, the, we're just, it just set up for a, this incredible kind of crazy situation where um, you'll have different countries that have access to the technology and that farmers and breeders in those countries will use it. And then other countries will be not using it because of this kind of weird regulatory rubric that's being implemented. And it's the potential for it to really mess up um, breeding programs is is pretty substantial, <laughs> I think. And so I, I kind of worry because, I mean, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out that, well, okay, if you can use the technology in, in certain countries and it accelerates their rate of genetic gain and they can introduce useful genetic variation. So now, for example, Argentina and Brazil have PERS-resistant pigs and we don't that's going to put a competitive disadvantage onto the farmers in the United States and, and potentially Europe as well, because PERS is a real problem over there. And so you'll have some countries that, you know, are, are reaping the benefits of this technology and so are their farmers and others that won't. And I mean, I guess we already have that with GMOs to some extent. So, you know, farmers in Europe aren't allowed to plant genetically um, engineered crops. Um, and so they, you know, have to keep raising non-GMO crops and, and all of the things that come along with not having insect-protected crops, for example. And so I wonder if we're going to have the same situation here. Well, what's happening in places like China? You know, they're really off the radar in terms of uh, talking about what's happening, at least in what I've read. But there must be a lot of innovation happening there where they have an increasing middle class that's demanding animal products. And what's happening there? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it is a little bit opaque, as you alluded to, but certainly there's a lot of scholars that are doing their PhDs and postdocs here in editing. And, um, you know, we, we get them through the lab and then they go back to China. And so I think they're kind of amassing the horsepower to use this technology, as is perhaps evidenced by the publications coming out of the country. I think they're, they're, they're more than the US now as it relates to editing publications. So I don't think the government would be investing that sort of, um, you know, horsepower into this technology if they didn't ever plan to commercialize the products. And, and maybe they don't, they commercialize it and, and, you know, use it internally for their food supply. They got quite a lot of people to feed. Um, and I think they've got some real issues. So, for example, there's this really devastating disease called African swine fever um, that has recently um, come into into China and it's spreading. And, and they, I got to tell you, that's a very, very big pork producing country. And that is a horrible, devastating disease. And there's some work at the Roslyn Institute to develop gene edited pigs that are resistant to African swine fever because they're expressing um, an allele from the, the warthog, um, you know, um, and that because the warthog, I think, is that Pumba in, in that movie? Um, they're uh, resistant to African swine fever. And so the hypothesis is maybe that'll be protective for domestic pigs. And 
so um, that you know, it's an application like that, that the the benefit is going to be so compelling that I think that the switch may get pulled because the alternative of not using the technology is such a catastrophic loss of 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 a really important animal food source in China that it, it won't. You know, the benefits are so going to outweigh any risks that it it all just become a compelling necessity. Yeah, I think we covered that on episode 37 way back about three years ago. And uh, that was at the time they had the pigs on the ground. And I don't know that they've ever published anything about testing them yet. Have you seen anything on that? Yeah, so the Roslyn Institute has actually done the test, but being good scientists, they're waiting until the peer-reviewed publication has got through before they'll say what the results are, and I give them a lot of credit for that. Um, I don't know what the results are, and that's um, – so it could it, – I mean, it was a, a hypothesis that was being tested. We don't know what the outcome's going to be. It, it might be that that didn't render them sus- sus- resistant or it might be a did so we have to wait for the data on that one and um that i know the experiment's been done they've challenged those pigs and um the they're obviously uh taking it through the peer review process but i was just actually with the guy that that's from the Roslyn Institute at the Plant and Animal Genome last week. And I thought maybe I could get him a couple of beers and he might tell me what the answer is, but I, to no avail, I'm afraid. <laughs> oh, very good. Oh, well, we're speaking with the audibly frustrated uh, Dr. Allison Van Enenem. Uh She's a cooperative extension specialist at the University of California, Davis, uh, science communicator extraordinaire, movie star. <laughs> what else? <laughs> And uh, we'll be right back with the Talking Biotech podcast. Hello, Talking Biotech listeners. This is Nick Syke from No Ideas Media. If you've never heard of No Ideas Media, we make science and agriculture communications videos to be shared on social media sites like YouTube and Facebook and Twitter. The videos are not bad, if I do say so myself, and they are pretty effective at communicating complex science and ag topics to the general public. But, in order for them to reach the public, I need people like you to share the videos widely. I also need people like you to support No Ideas Media through Patreon. Patreon is a crowdfunding site, kind of like Kickstarter, but it works on smaller monthly donations. So, if you'd like to help No Ideas Media continue the work that we're doing, please go to patreon.com backslash noideasmedia and consider being a patron. Thanks very much. Welcome back to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Today we're talking with Dr. Allison Van Enenem, who's a cooperative extension specialist from the University of California, Davis. And we're talking about genetic engineering in animals and what's happening in animals and what some of the barriers are and what you can do to maybe help streamline this process. So the last thing we were really covering was uh, the really a scope of innovations that are happening, which really sound like tremendous benefits, sound like really good things. And they're not just ideas like, you know, pie in the sky ideas. These are innovations that have happened that are sitting at a regulatory impasse. And you mentioned that these animals are regulated as drugs. <laughs> what exactly so, does that mean? So it's, it all comes down to the coordinated framework and the choices that were made what, 20, 30 years ago um, as to how to regulate the products of, of biotechnology. And so um, the 
when we were talking about genetic engineering, the 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 FDA in two thousand and nine announced that they were going to regulate um, the recombinant DNA construct in animals as new animal drugs because the definition of a drug is something that alters the form or function of an animal. And for example, in the fast-growing salmon, it was expressing a protein that made it grow fast. So it was expressing the function and therefore it was a drug. And the fish wasn't a drug, but that recombinant DNA construct itself was a drug. And that was basically the approach that was used to evaluate the the fast-growing salmon. But what happened with gene editing is that in 2017, there was an updated draft of the guidance for industry from the FDA that says no longer was that recombinant DNA construct going to be the trigger for a new animal drug application. It was going to be any intentional edit that was made to an animal using modern molecular biotechnologies. And so what that means, and it's defined, is that if you alter a single SNP in an animal or you introduce a deletion, for example, the PERS pig that has that protein deleted that makes it resistant, then you have to, you've altered the form or function of that animal, according to the FDA. So a a SNP or a deletion is now a drug and you have to go through a formal pre-market, multi-generational new animal drug approval. Um, And you have to basically do what you might have to do to get um, aspirin approved, for example. So you need to show the efficacy of the drug. You need to show that it's durable and it's transmitted from generation to generation. You need to show food safety of the drug. And all of that makes sense if you're talking about a drug, (laughs) but it gets a little weird when you're talking about a pole dairy bull. (laughs) Because in that case, it's like, well, the drug is that it doesn't grow horns. Yep, that's true. We can see that. But beyond that, it's like, what food safety concerns are we worried about in the meat and milk from a polled animal? And how does that differ from the polled animals that we routinely eat when we have an Angus hamburger? (laughs) Um, And it kind of just at that stage, it gets to be kind of ludicrous because it's just breeding and it's we don't have any special pre-market regulatory review for conventional breeding. Um, And so why, if it's intentionally introduced using one technology, is it going to be regulated as a drug? But if it's just naturally bred in, it's not a drug. So the same exact DNA sequence is a drug in one animal and just food in another because of the way that that sequence was introduced. And so I guess as a scientist in me, I'm like, what are we doing here? You know, DNA is not a drug. It does alter our form and function. I agree. And so I guess from that perspective, all DNA is a drug. Um, but when we're talking about sequences in food, it's not, it's, I mean, DNA in our dietary DNA is generally regarded as safe. We eat it, you know, I had a banana for breakfast and, and it had banana DNA. And I'm not worried about turning into a banana. And uh, its sequence, I have no idea what its DNA sequence is and neither does my stomach because it just broke it down into nucleotides. It's what we do when we digest food. And so it just, it's not fit for purpose, this regulation. And and just to give you a feel for what the implications are, so if I've got an an intentional alteration in in a bull, so I've introduced a deletion, for example, then I have to show um, that I didn't 
have any other off-target effects. And, and that's quite problematic if you look at the three, you know, the billions of base pairs that make up a cow. There's literally every generation de novo mutations that it's impossible to differentiate between whether that was just a de novo mutation or um, a sequencing error or there's there's thousands of these. If I compare two bulls, they're going to literally have millions of genetic variations. That's the very basis of SNP chip genotyping, right? And so it's like this normal genetic variation is part of our diet and, and doesn't constitute a risk. And so we're being asked to do kind of these very elaborate assays on on things based on the the method that was intentionally used to alter the genome rather than any risk attributes of the product and that's actually counter to what is said in the in the coordinated framework which is that regulation should be triggered by risk and not by the process that was used to introduce a particular genetic variant and so it doesn't it doesn't even align with the coordinated framework and so all our cows are now drugs and that means that um, they they can't go into the food supply they have to be incinerated I mean it's it has all of these knock-on effects that really will hamper a research in this area because um, it's fundamentally changing the way that that we run our programs and and making animals drugs and theoretically it's still the the genetic modification or the genetic alteration that's the drug but in the case of a knockout just think about it so the absence of a sequence of dna is a drug that is part <laughs> and the drug <laughs> residue is it not being there and its offspring are going to carry that drug. It's not a drug. It's, it's deletion, right? And it's like getting transmitted through through sex. It's not. It's not a drug. And so I, I fundamentally just can't get my head around kind of how this can work um, and what the implications will be in terms of our ability to use this technology. So for for animal breeding programs, probably the same in plants, but um, many pigs, for example, there's a, it's a four-way cross is is used to to produce a, the kind of the F1 that goes to market. So you're going to have to introduce edits into all four parent lines of the pigs. And is every single one of those pigs going to be an independent, separate drug that needs to go through a new animal drug evaluation? That's And they're asking for three generations of data. Well, that's going to basically you know, it requires several years to get that data for every single pig. It's just not going to be compatible with, with breeding programs. And so it's it more or less, you won't be able to use it. In other words, if it's not compatible with our breeding industry, um, it's it's got to be seamlessly integrated into it. Otherwise, it's, it puts it outside the realm of possibility of using it. And so it, it has this really big implications and it, it doesn't even make much sense to, to say that a deletion is a drug, <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> no, it's, it's yeah, well, absolutely. I, this always boggles my mind. It, for the listener who doesn't maybe think about the genomics and what SNPs are and things, this is a SNP, a single nucleotide polymorphism. So a single change of one of the letters in DNA done in a very precise way. And in this case, well, at least in this case, done in a very precise way. How, how big is a bull genome or a cow genome? You're talking about uh, 3 billion base pairs or so, right? Yeah, in that ballpark. <laughs> in that ballpark, yeah. So in the bullpen of the ballpark. Uh, so, you're, so you're looking at um, basically one second in 100 years is, is the equivalent change, right? I mean, it's a very, very small. 
And yet this is what triggers this entire elaborate scheme of regulatory oversight, which is impossible for anybody to really satisfy realistically. And so how do we change this? I mean, what, what, what can possibly be done? Well, so it's a draft guidance and there was an open call for comments afterwards, which closed, I don't know, a year and a half ago, perhaps. And there hasn't been any further update to the proposed regulations since that time. And I just, I'm concerned that the longer we don't do anything, the inertia will become the new norm, if you will. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? So uh, if we, if we, if there's no pushback from the scientists that are impacted, and in my case, this very much impacts me and because I work in cattle and I know what um, making them a drug, what, what the implications of that are. And, 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 you know, is a farm now going to be raising purrs, pigs? Is that, they're all going to be drug manufacturing facilities I, it just none of that makes sense and so what um, we're trying to do is is just ask that if the animals could have been produced using conventional breeding um, that they be subject to this the same approach that's being used for food plants in the United States this this dichotomy between the two kingdoms doesn't make any sense and so we're just calling for a harmonization of the US regulatory approach to editing in food species so that both plant and animal breeders have access to gene editing innovations to introduce useful sustainability traits like disease resistance and climate adaptability and food quality attributes into U.S. agricultural breeding programs. <laughs> that's that's what we're asking for. Um, and just a harmonization within our own country because this, this different regulations for the two kingdoms, plants and animals, when we're talking about food applications that could have been achieved using conventional breeding – doesn't make any sense and it really puts us at a competitive disadvantage relative to the plant breeders and I mean I, I both plant and animal breeding are incredibly important components of sustainability and to, to tie animal breeders hands behind their back um, and not allow them to use this technology by having what effectively is a process triggered regulation that that is just un un concerned with product risk it's it's like triggered by intention human intention and that's got nothing to do with product risk and and it's also just weird <laughs> like <laughs> you know humans intended this therefore we need to regulate it and it's like well okay i'll just say i didn't really mean for that to happen and then it's okay <laughs> it's like i don't even know what that means like oh look i you know i didn't i was trying for this but i happened to get polled <laughs> it was unintentional <laughs> If you did do it by mutagenesis, at least in plants, you can you can put your cows in a nuclear reactor and you can create the same <laughs> mutation. Well, and now it's a <laughs> we, and actually, if you look back in the history, they did try that a little bit. But let's just say that um, radiation mutagenesis breeding in animals didn't turn out very nicely because obviously, and they did this in zebrafish. But um, you know, you you introduce so many mutations that it's actually quite uh, lethal for the animals, and so that's not a technology we use in our animal breeding programs but to your point that if you do use radiation breeding in plants you're introducing literally thousands of of mutations and that doesn't get subject to any regulation whatsoever and and so when we've got a intentional very you know small modification to suddenly say that that 
has to be regulated, but mutagenesis breeding doesn't doesn't make any logical sense from a scientific perspective. Um, and it really seems to be almost philosophically triggered regulation. It doesn't, you know, regulation is theoretically there for for product safety and and to protect the public from from risky products. Um, it's not meant to be there to prevent all innovation from ever getting to market because that's pretty much what it seems like that is the case for animals because we you know it's it's just proven impossible to bring safe products to market with the current regulatory framework yeah i, I think the punchline to the joke was chicken kiev right <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that was the old joke about where the chernobyl the chicken in chernobyl but oh, um i, I guess <laughs> the uh the other thought about this then, well, what about the American industries in hogs and cattle? You know, those seem to be really dominant industries that have some political clout. Where have they been on this? So the pork industry has actually been very strong on this. The National Pork Producers Council came out with a position paper on the regulation of gene-edited animals. Um, and they basically said that this FDA regulatory path um, will result in a lengthy and expensive approval process and functionally make any gene-edited animal a living animal drug and every farm raising them a drug manufacturing facility. Um, they were concerned that it doesn't allow for a risk-based approach that takes into consideration the familiarity or the complexity of the genetic changes and the fact that they could have been achieved through conventional breeding techniques, though, as they point out, at the expense of time and genetic improvement for, from decades of animal breeding. And they were concerned that the approach is out of step with the regulatory pathways under development in the rest of the world, such as those I outlined in the South American countries. So so um, I think that they've a strong, you know, that the the cattle industry is really interested. I've had producers ring me wanting to know how they could gene edit their bulls to be polled because Wagyu, for example, grow horns and they would la love to have polled animals. And so I think there's industry interest there, but there's also a nervousness um, that this is all going to get conflated with the whole GMO debate. <laughs> um, and I think everyone feels that. And and I I just, I worry that we're it's like Groundhog's Day from from a gene editing, from a genetic engineering perspective, that we're going to have another 20 years of fruitless GMO debate around gene editing. And I think that would just be a, a calamity um, and, and a tragedy, really, for, for breeding innovation in our, in our food breeding programs. And um, I hope that's not what's happening, but I, I fear it is. Well, you may be right. I, I think we did learn a lot about how to handle this differently. And, uh, you know, we've talked ad, ad nauseum about the ways that scientists and farmers can be better at helping to uh, at least buffer the conversation a bit. But what are some of the ways that you're currently pushing to try to create awareness and change in this area? Yeah, so I guess um, I have been kind of watching and, and I I saw Steve's petition for um, access to using biotechnology in, in forest breeding programs and it kind of prompted me into um, putting together um, a petition that I, I really want public sector scientists that work in this area to sign on to in terms of asking for um, – you know, harmonizing of the US gene edited food regulations so that they're the same for plants and animals um, because the current approach really, um, it, it hinders animal uh, editing. And it's, uh, I did a go 
petition the same as what uh, Steve did. And the the bottom line ask is that, um, you know, the proposed regulatory approach for gene-edited animals is just going to thwart attempts by public sector researchers and small companies to use gene editing to solve things like zoonotic disease and animal welfare problems in the United States. Um, and it'll disadvantage both the scientists here and also our agricultural industries. And so um, the call is for a harmonization of the US regulatory approach for animals that could have been produced in using conventional breeding. And so I don't, you know, it, the animals that are being produced for pharmaceutical purposes, that's a different category. But for ones that are intended for food purposes and they, they have um, intentional alterations that could have been achieved using conventional breeding, there's just no rationale for why they should be subject to a separate um, evaluation than our conventional breeding programs. And that's that's the bottom line. Um, and the reason this is important for researchers is, as I mentioned, um, you know, if, if animals are drugs, um, then they can't go into the food supply and, and we would have to incinerate all of our cows. Um, and that that's, you know, typically we do our breeding programs and then the cows go into the food supply or the, or, you know, as the milk that we have here at our dairy goes into the, to the, you know, the milk supply, it's part of our, um, the, the way that we can even afford to have food animals here is obviously for our teaching and veterinary um, teaching program. But we, we sell those animals and, and they go into the food supply. If, if suddenly we have to incinerate them all, then that's obviously a huge additional cost that goes on to um, the research. In addition to why are we incinerating this animal? Because it's polled? You know, it's just, it's just wrong. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's disrespectful to the animal if nothing else. It's like, there's nothing, there's no reason why that they're, they're, they should be treated any differently. We've got actual animals in our pasture now where we've got polled, holst, uh, polled Angus that are, have the naturally occurring allele. And then right next door, we've got our offspring of a gene edited bull um, that have got the same exact sequence, also don't grow horns. And, and, and one of them, is is legal to go into the food supply and the other one is, is, is at the current time a drug and so it, it has to um you know it's not allowed to go in the food supply and that i just you know that the implications of that are very very big for uh land-grant universities that have animals and i think anyone that's worked in in large animals like cattle can understand what the implications of that will be to research it'll it'll more or less make it almost impossible to to continue and and I don't know that we have, you know, big enough breeding companies. So Genus is a big pig breeding company and they're trying to get that one pig approved. But I just don't know that, you know, it'll be, it'll marginalise the use of the technology to, to big companies and, and it'll be a very limited application. It's almost ironic because it'll be exactly the same situation that we have with genetic engineering. And that's what everyone says they don't like is that large multinational corporations are the only ones that are developing products and it's only for large scale, um, you know, large acreage crops. Well, here we have a technology that could democratize the use of, of um, editing and it could be used for multiple different purposes. But if the regulations make it so prohibitive that only large multinational companies can afford it, then we've got the same problem again, ironically. And, and, and it didn't have to be this way. Like, 
you know, a SNP didn't have to be declared a drug. And I don't think it should be declared a drug. And it's also nonsensical when you look at the genetic variation that exists in a normal cow. Um, and that, I think, is, to me, it just as well, we've sequenced all of our animals now, and I look at the variation between sequent runs of identical samples, and we're getting literally thousands of differences when we sequence exactly the same animal, the same sample. And that's just sequencing error and pipeline, you know, what you call a good call and a bad call. There's just a lot of technical, um, you know, inaccuracies at a very small percentage, but a small percentage of 3 billion is still several thousand. And that background level of noise and stuff just makes it, you know, almost technically impossible to, to narrow down to, to a single, you know, change as to whether it's sequencing errors, spontaneous de novo mutation, um, and an inadvertent SNP or a naturally occurring mutation. It's like, how do you tell? Um, and, and why are we doing this? <laughs> like, if you look at all the variation that already exists, it's like, what are we doing this for? And so I guess, you know, I want to have a food safety issue that I can test for. So if I have a, a hypothesis that, you know, I'm, I don't know, expressing some protein that, that is, does something, I can at least test for that. But when I, I have no hypothesis and I'm just like sequencing, looking for, off targets it's just like it's it's kind of aimless it's like a it's like a fishing expedition and and it kind of ignores the variability that comes just from all of the various sources of of de novo mutations and 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 technical differences in sequencing and all of that kind of stuff and so i just think it's asking the impossible and so to me if there's no you know difference in the kind of the uh, the the rate of mutation in these different um technologies relative to, to normal um, background variability in, in the um, in genetic variants, then there's no novel risk that's being introduced and it, it doesn't need this additional level of it's it's not you know it's not radioactive nucleotides it's just DNA and we're treating it like it's you know plutonium and it doesn't make any sense. Yeah so it, it really is a confusing issue and it's something that I hope that that at least the petition that you put forward gets a lot of attention and maybe can be used to fortify some sort of discussion with uh, some sort of regulatory uh, oversight that maybe that can change. Yeah. I think that I, I think that this is the kind of thing that uh, not using all the tools in the toolbox is not going to be good for the U S farmer, ultimately uh, the rancher, but um, more so is just almost a national problem where we'll be buying all of our, uh, food from somebody else. Yeah. And well, it's, it, I, I, it's going to give a competitive advantage to breeders and farmers in, in countries that have more, you know, rational science-based regulatory approaches. And that's just, that's just, you know, removing competitiveness from, from our own agricultural systems. And that, that, that doesn't really make any sense. Yeah, it's, it's the last thing we make here. And <laughs> it, it, so but if people do want to sign the petition, where do they go? Uh, so I have it's at go it's a go petition um, and it's called Harmonize US Gene Edited Food Regulations and so um, I will give you the link to it. If I also did a um, a tinyurl.com um, uh, shortcut and it's tinyurl.com backslash DNA is not a drug. <laughs> um, so I think you get 
where I'm coming from on that one. And uh, I just, uh, to try to make it a little bit easier to, to find it. Um, but, you know, I think that the important thing here is um, that the impact that this could have on, on research and then also downstream on the, uh, the abilities access the industry's ability to actually use this in their um, in their production systems and and forestalling the use of this really is associated with huge opportunity costs that I think is it's almost hard to put into words the you know the impact of things like disease resistance if we could remove um, PERS for example that's I think a 600 million dollar problem for the industry annually and it's devastating for the farmers whose pigs get that disease and that that human cost is you know it's it's palpable if you've spoken to these farmers um, and it's we've got genetics that could take care of and, and why is disease resistance seems to me like such a sustainability trait that you just think everyone would get behind. Um, so I, I am concerned that, that if we don't speak up as, as scientists and, and we're not, you know, we're not, not normally kind of, you know, Lobby, lobbyists, right? I mean, that's not in our nature to be politically active, kind of, but I think we have to start standing up and, and saying when, you know, the emperor has no clothes on, um, and, and he doesn't in this case, um, because we're, we're regulating a process, um, rather than looking at product risk. And, and that has been shown to not allow safe products onto the market for what, 30 years now, um, since the first genetically engineered animals were produced. And so I don't want gene editing to go down the same pathway. It's kind of blocked the use in my career and I don't want my students to face the same frustration um, with this very useful new technology that's that's um, is, is coming onto the market with gene editing. Well, Dr. Elson Van Enenem, I, you know, um, as always, I appreciate your discussion of the important topic and I share your frustration and I really appreciate your passion in just wanting to allow technology to be regulated in a smart way. Right. And, and it, it so seems such, such a no brainer to me, but, you know, please keep me posted as this moves forward. We'll try to uh, guide as much traffic as we can over to that petition uh, over at go petition. And the, we'll put the address here on the website. Okay. All right. So thank you very much for joining us and uh, let us know if anything else comes through on this. Okay. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot, Kevin. I appreciate it. And thank you for listening to the talking biotech podcast, write a review on iTunes or um, write a review on any particular website. I don't care. Uh, the point is sharing science with other folks, especially this kind of information about the regulatory climate we're in and how it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, we can make the change that we want to see, but it takes you getting involved, signing a petition, telling a friend, and really looking for smart regulation around genetic engineering. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's Electronic Lab Notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.